All right, I'm going to pray and we'll dive into our time of teaching. Father, thank you for the rain. Uh, rain is actually a blessing in scripture. Uh, it's a reminder of your faithfulness to, to finite humans who can't, there's a lot we cannot do on our own. And um, the people of scripture were aware of that. Uh, they, they knew they needed rain to come for crops to become what they needed to become, to be harvested. And they had a real dependence on you. And so Lord, I just pray um, that we'd view rain almost as a, a sacrament in a way, just a reminder of your faithfulness and your provision in our lives. You always give us what we need. You don't always give us what we want, but you give us what we need. And what we always need is more grace. And for those who are here who are doubting your provision or your love, or, um, or maybe they, we're, we're coming in this morning and we feel just dirty and messy, like our sin and our shame, would the rain be a fresh reminder of your grace that cleanses us, your grace that provides for us, your grace that empowers us, your grace that helps us grow and flourish to be who you call us to be, infinitely more than the rain does those things in the physical. And so it's to you, our gracious King Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, everyone. Well, if you're new, my name's Andy. I'm one of the pastors here at Restored. And if you are new, uh, honestly, we're glad that you're here. It's kind of a weird morning with the rain and everything going on. Uh, but what we want to say is we're glad that you're here. Um, we, um, the church being named Restored has to do with this idea that we believe that God longs to restore himself to people. That every human deep down desires a relationship with God. And we believe that God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And if you don't believe that, that's okay. But we believe that in Jesus is life, a life that we, we didn't even know we needed. That's even better than we could have dreamed. And, and so we've been doing a series called About That Life. And it's a series where Jesus teaches how to live life the way that he designed life to be lived as a creator. It's a series uh, uh, looking at Jesus' most famous uh, teaching. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so far in this series, we've been doing some uh, foundational work. We, we, we started out with two questions, uh, or, or three questions. We started out with, um, who is Jesus? Who is this, this king that is teaching? Then we talked about, what, is the, uh, what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us to follow him. He says, man, if humanity is going to live an abundant life, it's in following him. And then we looked at what actually is the Sermon on the Mount. And then we shifted from those questions about the sermon to getting into its contents. And in the first two weeks, we looked at who disciples are called to be. And Marie looked at the Beatitudes and the character of a disciple. And then two weeks ago, I looked at this idea of the church or Christians being salt and light. And that is that we are distinct from our culture. We add flavor and we brighten up our culture and we preserve the good parts of our culture. Um, but we are distinct as Christians from the world. And so that was called the distinct life. And so um, today we're going to look at what Jesus believed about something. Because um, this week we're actually shifting from who disciples are to what disciples do. Almost the, almost the entirety of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is what we do as disciples. It's not really who we are anymore. And so Jesus is going to unpack what disciples do, how they believe and behave. What they believe and how they behave. That's what Jesus is going to unpack, which leads me to today's sermon. It's called the submitted life. The submitted life. Uh, how many of you guys love the word submission? If you love submission, say yeah. All right, just me, I guess. Okay, right. Yeah, none of us do, right? No one wants us ever since the beginning of creation, the scriptures say. Humanity has said, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. 
In the words of uh, Ben Stiller in Dodgeball, nobody tells me to live my own, <laughs> live my life or bleed my own blood. Right? Uh, little, from little kids to weird people that are like, don't, no one tells me, whatever. Like, we can, we can go on and on. You've seen the bumper stickers. Um, we don't want anyone telling us what to do. It was no different back in the day. As humanity, we want to do life on our terms, with our ethics, with our view. And we go, God, you got some cool ideas, but like, let me do my own thing now. And again, there's an inherent foolishness in that. You may not believe that Jesus is God, but if he is God, so this is for those who, uh, I'm not coming at you if you don't believe in Jesus, but for those who say, I do believe in Jesus, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I just don't obey him, that's crazy. That's like walking up to Elon Musk and going, hey, I like what you're doing with Teslas. I think we should put gas in them. It's like, cool, bro. Uh, do that, ruin the car. Uh, you didn't design it. You don't know how it's best to be used. And somebody goes, man, I created human life. I know what human flourishing looks like. You need to trust me and walk into it. And so uh, this is what's going to happen. And so he's going to lay out, um, Jesus is going to lay out what he believes about the Bible. And there's a lot of topics, honestly, with Jesus where I, I, I go, man, I wish Jesus would just tell us what he believes about this thing. We have so many things, especially in modern culture. I wish Jesus would just come in and go, Jesus is doing a press, uh, you know, like a news conference. He's like, I can say this and this. Uh, that's whack. That idea is whack. Get it out of here. That's amazing. You know, when we, we struggle to discern and parse things, that Jesus would come in and just clear the air and unpack what is true and what isn't true today. Now, uh, we don't get that luxury, but we do have Jesus telling us what he does believe about something, and it's what he believes about the Bible, which is kind of a big deal. So if you guys have Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 17. We're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. And we're going to look at this idea of, of what does it mean to submit our lives to scriptures, to be, sh- to be shaped by the scriptures. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, law and prophets, that's um, shorthand at this time in rabbinical teaching for the Old Testament. Uh, everyone agreed. It, it, it's, um, even if you, uh, I, I've taken biblical studies and stuff in college, and they even talk about uh, parts of the Bible that we wouldn't think of as prophets, as prophets. So like Judges, Joshua, um, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, that stuff. It, it, those are um, like the former prophets, if you do like uh, formal theological education. But back in the day, rabbis, uh, they would say, man, the law and the prophets, that's all of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, um, I didn't come to abolish it. Now, why is he saying that? Um, here's the thing. Jesus had a lot of people who did not like him. He had a lot of religious leaders uh, who were trying to slander him and accuse him of things that were not true because they wanted to discredit him. Uh, and so they were, they were trying to get this sentiment going um, that, G- again, Jesus is calling the religious leaders out for their hypocrisy. And they don't like that, right? Like no one likes getting called out on their hypocrisy. Everyone's a hypocrite. The Pharisees were big hypocrites. Uh, the teachers of the law at the time were big hypocrites, and, and he was calling that out. And so um, because what he was saying was true, they can't deal with his arguments. So what they do is they, go, they do like an ad hominem attack. They're doing like old school political ads. They're like, Jesus says he believes the Torah. I don't think so, right? Here's four things Jesus said, you know. And, um, and so, so basically they want to discredit him, and the fastest way to do that and first century Israel is to go, this guy doesn't believe in the Torah. He's teaching some radical things. He's applying the Torah in ways that we're not used to. And so 
um, he must be wanting, he must be like this revolutionary who wants to upend the Old Testament, upend the Torah. He wants to move us away from worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, to something different and weird. He's not about our God or our scriptures. And so that's why Jesus is going to give his perspective on the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I think it was important for him to defend himself, but I also think it's not just possible. Hear this. It's not just possible, but likely he knew that some who would follow him would miss the point of what he's been saying and teaching. Okay. Um, I've had this as a parent where I've told my kids something and then I hear it quoted later and it's not what I said. Um, Calvin's got a big thing about what constitutes like a piece of a brownie. It's like, oh, no, nah, that wasn't a piece. The pe- you know, you got to put them together for it to be a piece. So this was like a segment of a piece. And like, dude, I said you got one piece, right? On a more serious note, um, uh, people who follow teachers will often misunderstand the teacher or apply the teacher's messages or writings in ways that the original teacher themselves would not recognize. Does that make sense? Like you teach something that people take it way too far or not in the way that you would have thought. For example, when we started this church, we knew that a ton of people that we were dealing with at that time thought that they were following Jesus. But in reality, they were just following church rules and many of them didn't love God. Like they were doing the rules, but they hated God when you dug into the details. So there was like legalism and kind of a pseudo prosperity gospel where people obeyed God for the wrong reasons, uh, either purely out of obligation or to get something from him. And so we taught a lot in this church in the first three years on having a gospel centered motivation for obeying God. You guys remember that? Anybody in this church? A couple of you guys. Um, Because we wanted people who obeyed God, not just because we had to, but because we wanted to. And so we taught people that the best kind of obedience is obeying him because he first loved us. And so we want to love him in return with our obedience. Not to earn anything or to keep our relationship, but because we love Jesus for Jesus and we're grateful for what he has already done for us in the gospel. We love because he first loved us. We loved that as a motivation. Our desire for teaching that was good. We wanted people to experience a living, loving relationship with a living, loving God, not stale religion. But the problem is people started to take that teaching and assume that it meant we only obey when we feel loving. Uh, Obedience only matters if our motives are perfect and pure. If your motives aren't going to be pure, you might as well not obey. This is how this started to get applied over time, Um, right? You might as well sin if you don't want to sin for the wrong reasons. And this is not what we were teaching, okay? Uh, That's not what we were teaching. Um, We were saying your obedience and your motivation matters. You got, some people are just worried about obedience but not motivation. We're saying they both matter. People started going, just motivation matters. Now, that doesn't work, right? Can you imagine a marriage? I never get my wife flowers. I just never feel like it. I feel like it'd be inauthentic to get her flowers if I'm not feeling like getting flowers. Never serve around the house. I feel like I want to serve because I want her to do something for me. It's transactional. I'm just never going to help out around the house. I get that motivation sorted out. Commit adultery. You know, I didn't have the right motivations for staying faithful to you. I was only faithful because I made vows, not because I felt it deeply in my heart. Again, you can see how this leads to a very toxic relationship with God applied the wrong way. 
Um, There's a professor we loved at the time, and he said this. He said, there's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy, but that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity to what I believe, um, to live out of conformity to what I believe, um, sorry. Oh, here we go. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel is not hypocrisy, it's integrity. You guys catch that? So we were, we were, we were never teaching people that only your motivation mattered, your obedience didn't, but that's kind of where we got. It's like, my motives aren't right. This isn't real. Now, back to our passage, Jesus has been teaching some radical things to his disciples, that in the hands of the wrong people with the wrong perspective, you can go, yes, no more obeying God. Yes, grace is here. We're going to do our own thing, right? Especially, and not just his enemies, right? Even some of his, like, fringe followers who only show up kind of every, every third lecture, every third teaching. Uh, they come in kind of in and out. They're going to listen a little bit. They're on their phone a little bit. They might misinterpret what Jesus was saying. They might think Jesus is this kind of revolutionary who's anti-Old Testament, but he wasn't. We know that after Jesus ascended, uh, you know, since the beginning of the church, there have been people who have wanted to abandon the Old Testament or even parts of the New Testament in the last couple hundred years because they were offensive or they weren't palatable or they were hard to deal with. Uh, There's an ancient heretic, a guy named uh, Marcion of uh, Sinope. Uh, He was a heretic from modern-day Turkey around the year 100 AD. Uh, He was a heretic because all of the church fathers said he was a, a heretic. Uh, I'm not just calling him that to be mean uh, heresy. Like he just, he, he moved away from orthodoxy. He started creating his own theology. And he taught that the Old Testament was no longer scripture and that Jesus was a different God from the God of the Old Testament so we can bail on the Old Testament. So did Jesus himself believe this? And the answer is no. He said, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And so in this next verse, Jesus is going to fill us in on his view of Scripture. Matthew 5, 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Um, The smallest letter in Hebrew is called a yod, and it's the size of a comma, a little smaller than the size of a comma in the English language. It's a letter. And uh, and he's saying... um, no matter how small the letter, no matter, no matter how small the part of the Old Testament, it's all good. It's all true. It's all going to last. Uh, the stroke of a letter here means the smallest mark you could make with a pen. What Jesus is saying is there's no part of Scripture we can move on from. In other words, Jesus is a big Bible guy. Like, love him or hate him, reject him, believe in him, follow him or not, he loved the Bible. You can hate Jesus, hate the Bible, do what you want to do, um, but, but you can't say that Jesus himself wasn't a big Bible guy. Verse 19, therefore, uh, he says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And so there's some kind of reciprocal relationship between how you treat the Bible and your experience of the kingdom of God. It's sobering for us. On the flip side, let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 19 continued, but whoever does and teaches these commands. So he's saying you don't kind of blow it off or explain it away or kind of buffet, pick and choose what you want to do, kind of crab legs, butter, no salad or whatever. Like like you don't get to pick and choose what parts of the scripture you're going to give yourself to or submit to. You, You take it all in. 
You read the Bible the way that Jesus does. And you don't just read it, you practice it. You obey what it says. And as you grow, you start to teach other people what Jesus taught over time as you mature. Keep reading. He says, that person will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Again, Jesus loved the Bible, and he believed certain things about it. Again, if we don't believe what Jesus believed about the Bible, we will not be able to become like him. But the good news is, is that Jesus, again, taught us what he believes. And so uh, I have a quick outline I want to work through. One longer point, three quick ones. I have four, four statements about Jesus' belief in terms of the scriptures. Number one, Jesus believed the scriptures are fulfilled in him. Number two, Jesus believed the scriptures were perfect and authoritative. Number three, Jesus believed the scriptures are to be both obeyed and taught. And number four, Jesus believed the scriptures teach us a deeper way to be righteous. Number one, Jesus believed the scriptures are fulfilled in him. He says, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, the opposite of abolish is what? What do you guys think in English? Yeah, maintain, continue, keep it going, conserve. That's not what Jesus says. We might even think obey, and that's not what he says. Now, he could have he said, um, he, you know, I came to, uh, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to obey the law, but he actually says he came to fulfill the law. And fulfill means like to, like to fill out, like to fill, fill, to fill all the way to overflowing. And so what Jesus is saying here is that all of the Old Testament laws and stories and prophecies, they find their completion in him. All of it points to Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus looks like, the Old Testament embodies it perfectly. And if you want to know what the Old Testament's about, Jesus will fill it out for you perfectly. One scholar and seminary, seminary professor says this. He says, we should think of the Old Testament as a cup or like a mug, right? Is Allison here? Oh, she's got a mug blog. She had a mug, mug blog for a while called Mug Finds. Big mug gal. Jesus, big Baba guy. Allison, big mug gal. And so imagine, right, like you've got the, your favorite coffee, wherever you roll to for coffee or for tea for some of our Commonwealth friends, or uh, maybe you do something else. I don't even know what you're doing, right? But, but you have, you know, maybe you're doing the David Letterman whiskey in a, 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 a mug or whatever. Um, but yeah, Bottlecraft sells co coffee mugs, and they don't sell coffee, so it makes sense. Um, whatever it is, imagine you've got a liquid you enjoy, okay? Water in your water bottle, whatever. But you've got like a, an amazing mug, right? This, this professor said that, that the Old Testament's like that mug, and Jesus is like the liquid that fills the cup. And here's what he means by that. A cup by itself is useless. Allison might argue with that. She goes, it has inherent beauty in and of itself. But, but, it, but it doesn't have a function, right? Like, it needs liquid to have purpose and meaning. On the flip side, liquid cannot be grasped and hardly taken in if there's no cup. There's no, right? You ever try to drink with just your hands? It's a wild vibe. I've had to do it like at, you know, a camp or something with like we're out of water and it's like whatever. You guys, I feel like you guys are judging me on that, but whatever. <laughs> We've all been children, all right? You've all drank out of a hose back in the day. If you didn't, you had to, I'm sorry about your childhood. We can talk about it later. But the point of the Old Testament is the ability to grasp Jesus. It allows us to, to take him in. When Jesus said he came to fulfill the Old Testament, he's saying, if you don't understand the laws and the prophets and the sacrificial system and the temple and the tabernacle and the kings and the priests and the Passover lamb and the festivals, you will struggle to understand who I am and why I came. If you don't know about God calling Abraham in Genesis 12, you're going to struggle to appreciate what's happening in, in Revelation 12. 
Jesus reiterates this in a few places. John chapter 5, he rebukes the religious leaders at a different time. He says, you search the scriptures to find the life, but you refuse to realize that they point to me. Pharisees also big Bible people, but they missed that it was about Jesus. Now, I'm not comparing Allison to the Pharisees, but they were, they were, they were all mug, no drink. It was weird just walking around like, man, check it out. <laughs> like, I don't even think they're drinking anything. Like, dude, they're not drinking anything. They're dry. They're thirsty. They're not experiencing life. So searching the scriptures without looking for Jesus actually leads to death. Without Jesus, the Bible is just weird. It's just an ancient document written in an ancient language that we don't understand. Uh, one guy compared it to Ikea directions. It's like, dude, these, are written in, they, these were clearly written in a different language originally. The illustrations don't make a lot of sense. <laughs> and I don't know if I can really apply what's on here to what's happening. Luke 24 says, all, this, all of scripture, uh, Luke 24, post-resurrection, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he pulls his disciples in, and it says he, he, for, for like a day or so, he taught them the scriptures, the Old Testament, about everything it had concerning him. The law and the prophets, the same phrase. Even the purity laws lead us to Jesus in the Old Testament that show us our need of cleansing, how the, the effects of sin impact us, not just sin itself. The sacrificial system reminds us that our sin needs to be atoned for, and on and on it goes. The tabernacle reminds us that there's a God who wants to be with us in spite of our sin. He's trying to make a way to do that. And so the more you get into the Bible, you start to see Jesus everywhere in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and your gratitude for grace and your love for him will grow. We've, we've got to be people, uh, people of Scripture. Um, Jesus also believed that the Scriptures were perfect and authoritative. Not a small claim to make in 2022 North Park. But Jesus made this claim. Verse 18 says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Um, throughout church history, there have been people uh, who have sought to make the claim that some of the Bible isn't actually from God. Uh, about 100 or 150 years ago, a bunch of churches in America influenced by a German theologian, liberal theologian named Frederick Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher. It's like, it's such a long last name. If I have some German homies, you guys can, can yeah, whatever. I'm just going to say Schleiermacher. Stopped believing in large chunks of the scriptures in order to reach people. Uh, it, Sorry, in order to reach people um, that they thought would be turned off by hard parts of the Bible, they decided to abandon large chunks of the Old Testament, any text with supernatural phenomena, or anything offensive to modern people. The Bible became a book, uh, at this time, in these types of churches, the Bible became, became a book to stand over, not a book to kneel under. And there is a massive difference. A massive difference for your spiritual life as well. Um, just so you know, most of those churches have closed. Most of those denominations are on their last legs. They keep selling buildings to keep funding very small churches. Now, again, you can disregard Jesus if you want, but the Jesus of the Gospels was not of the view that Scripture wasn't perfect. And actually, liberal theologians that reject the authority of Scripture themselves, they'll tell you this all day. Like, you, you can disagree with Jesus if you want, but this is what he believed. H.J. Um, Cadbury, a Harvard professor, one of the more extreme New Testament critics of the last generation, once declared that he was far more sure as a mere historical fact 
that Jesus held to the common Jewish view of an infallible, authoritative Bible than that Jesus believed in his own messiahship. So he's like, the Bible could be wrong, Jesus could be wrong, but the Jesus of the Bible was into the Bible. Um, And again, Jesus was all about the Bible. He quotes the Bible 78 times in the Synoptic Gospels alone, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's not just the quantity of the times that he refers to the scriptures it's the quality of the moment when he brings them to bear on the situation um the beginning of the gospels he's tempted by satan himself in the desert think about that man like i've been tempted before i've been tempted strongly before in different areas of my life this is the devil himself showing up what does jesus bring to the fight he quotes deuteronomy three times and he wins. By the way, if he sins, he's not the perfect sacrifice we need and our salvation's in jeopardy. It's a high-stakes situation with a high-quality opponent. Jesus goes, I'm bringing the word to bear. He quotes extensively from Exodus in the Sermon on the Mount, which he unpacks who we're supposed to be as his people. Uh, He starts his ministry by reading from Isaiah 61, and his first public moment, it's Isaiah 61. He grabs the scroll, the same Isaiah 61 we have. And reads and goes, this is about me. More importantly than that, he quotes the Psalms when he's in the greatest pain he's ever been in. Now, we all say things when we're in pain, all right? Think about the last time you stubbed your toe or hit your head or realized you were late. What came out of your mouth almost automatically? What came out? Now, now, now on the count of three, we're all, on the count of three, we're all going to say the word we said when that happened, okay? One, two, I'm just kidding. Take it easy. Take it easy. Some, that guy, he was pumped. Now, I'm going to cuss at church, right? Um, when I'm frustrated, <laughs> too excited about it. When I'm frustrated, I often say a word I can't say up here, okay? I don't think it's a sin. We can talk about it. I wrote a white paper on cussing one time, biblical perspective. That being said, I don't think it's a sin, but I'm not going to say it up here. Like I teach our kids, cuss words, they're not, they're not sinful, but they're not always appropriate. And kids aren't wise enough to know when they're appropriate. So we're going to take it easy. Now, when I'm frustrated, I may say a swear word. When I'm truly afraid or anxious or desperate, and I've had these times when I thought, when I thought Jackie's brother was going to die about a year ago, got a wild call. When I'm really scared, I just say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Like when I'm really scared or desperate, when I'm really worried. That's where I go. Jesus, when he's on the cross, He's, scripture comes out. Psalm 22 comes out. Even when he's not enjoying the same level of fellowship with his father, the words, his father's words are coming out. Now, again, there are a lot of reasons to struggle. I'll say this. There are a lot of reasons to struggle to believe in an authoritative Bible. Okay? I don't want to dismiss that uh, um, at all. Okay? I actually preached for over an hour about doubts regarding the Bible. It's actually a really good sermon for the wreck. Um, in our Awkward Questions series, if you go to RestoredUptown.com, we have a sermon series called Awkward Questions. It's called, Why Would Anyone Take the Bible Seriously? It's the name of the sermon. And uh, I talked about slavery and polygamy and women's rights and transmission processes and literary genres and contradictions and more, all right? It's like AMPM, too much good stuff. There are good faith reasons. By the way, that's not the end of it. I have like 12 books I can give you two if you're interested. There are good faith, intellectually honest reasons to struggle with the concept of an authoritative Bible. But for many of us, if we're honest, 
We don't want an authoritative Bible. I know a lot of people, I, I have books by epic scholars and historians who are way smarter than the person talking to me. And they go, oh, I just think the Bible's got a lot of contradictions. I'm like, cool, you want to look into it? No, I don't want to look into it. I find that when people actually look into the Jesus of the Bible, they end up following him. But we don't want to, right? Romans 1, we want to suppress the truth. Um, have you ever been, um, it's a real vulnerable moment, have you ever been in a moment where you were invited to an event that you really didn't want to go to, but you felt obligated to go to? Hands up, come on. Okay, all right, a lot of you guys, okay. All of us, right? We had that moment. And if you ever had a moment, I'm going to describe a specific type of event. Have you ever had a moment where something came up that technically, in a certain context, could be a reason to miss this event, though it didn't actually keep you, and you said, ah, this thing came up that probably if you wanted to, you could push through, right? Okay, we got, okay, we got 20, uh, right, uh, right? That's what we, that's what tends to happen with the authority of the Bible. It's like, yeah, there's some good historical reasons that, that you need to look into, but we don't want to look into them. We're like, ah, I heard there's contradictions. I can't tell you how many times I talk to people. There's a ton of contradictions. I go, which ones? Man, it's in there, man. You know they're in there. I know. I've studied them. I had to study 101 <laughs> one time for a class, uh, contradictions, and get into how, how and why they, they are or they aren't actually contradictions. But you don't even know, and you're basing your whole worldview on this. For many of us, like Adam and Eve, we want to do our own thing. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. Again, we've been taught culturally that anyone who disagrees with us is a hater and should be cut out of our life. Right? No negative people in my life. Right? The Instagram situation. Again, Brad talked about this at the retreat, expressive individualism, right? You all exist as a people and as a society to affirm what I feel in here. You're not allowed. The ultimate heresy of our society is to tell me what's in here could ever be wrong, even though it often is. The Bible does that lovingly. God lovingly, he also tells us what's true of us and what's beautiful about us and where our worth comes from and the gifts we have. But he also tells us stuff we don't want to hear. For many of us, um, we don't want to hear calls to love our enemy. We don't want to hear calls to forgive. We don't want to hear calls to turn our anger into something beautiful and get it under control. We don't want to hear calls to sexual purity and marital faithfulness. We don't want to hear about serving others sacrificially. But Jesus goes, man, it's an authoritative word, and again, it's a word that will save your life if you trust it. Number three, um, Jesus believed the scriptures should be obeyed and taught. Believe the scriptures should be obeyed and taught. Um, there's a lot in, in the Bible, by the way. Like it teaches us about our origin as a people, um, where we came from, where we're going. It talks about the beginning of the world and, and parts of the end of the world. It talks about who, 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 who humanity is. It, it teaches us about sex and love and war and singleness and marriage, and making wise decisions, and, and, and what to do with credit cards, and, um, and uh, how to handle famines, and, um, and how to seek God when things are hard, and how to have healthy relationships, and, and on and on it goes. Like, there's so much in the scriptures, and if they're perfect and authoritative, then we need them taught to us, and, and we, need to, we, we, we need to obey them. But again, throughout church history and even now, there's so many people who want to silence the authority of Scripture, water it down. Um, the, the United, this is a funny name for them right now, the United Methodist Church 
is now breaking up because um, the American contingency of the church um, wants the, the sexual ethic to be reframed as just consenting adults. Again, they gave up on the Bible on paper about 50 years ago, statements of faith wise. But there's this faithful group of African Christians and Asian Christians who are like, no, God teaches us our sexual ethic. And we're not going to sell out to be cool. They've talked about um, sexual colonialism, that, that the Western people teaching us backward Africans how to live. He's like, no, God taught us how to live. And so uh, this group's now pitching Christian polyamory, Christian pornography, Christian swinging, wild, wild potlucks. But suppressing the Bible's teachings for current trends is nothing new. Uh, the Southern Baptist Church was started because the Northern Baptist churches wanted to put slave owners under church discipline and kick them out the church and say that they weren't real Christians. They also wanted to make sure that none of them were in leadership, so they said, we're going to start our own denomination. A friend of mine, uh, Claude Acho, he's a, a black pastor, he's preached at this church. Uh, he also notes that during slavery in America, there were slave Bibles that edited out massive sections of the scriptures. He says this, he says, recall that slave owners wouldn't permit major portions of the Bible to be taught to slaves. Consider that many slave owners resisted evangelizing slaves and baptizing them in the American colonies for fear that they would then demand the dignity and equality befitting all God's image bearers as clearly taught in Genesis. Such historical realities highlight Christianity's innate concern for both body and soul, the world to come and the world we inhabit now. By and large, slave owners knew that enslaved Africans in the colonies would discover in an uncensored Bible divine encouragement and empowerment for their full dignity and liberation. The majority of white Christian denominations understood the stakes. Baptism into full membership in the church would affirm slaves' full humanity and equality, so slave owners in white churches often sought to feed enslaved Africans a distorted faith. A white man's Christianity, since true Christianity would have disrupted their systems of oppression. Do you see the horrific irony? They excised large portions of scripture and pushed misreadings. Misreadings at the expense of what it actually emphasizes. The last thing, again, that slave owners wanted was an authoritative and perfect Bible in the hands of slaves that could contradict the words of a very unauthoritative, sinful, wicked system. Which leads to our last point. Jesus believed the scriptures teach us a deeper way to be righteous. A deeper way to be righteous. So Jesus kind of pitched his view of the Bible. He's like, man, it's perfect and authoritative. It's about me. You need it. It should be taught and obeyed. It should not be silenced or suppressed or hidden or not taken seriously. And he could go, all right, guys, so here's what I want you to do. CBR. So read the Bible. I've got to go. Just read. That's all I want you guys to do. I'm out of here. It's not what he does. If you keep reading, he says this. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, and righteousness means ethical goodness, moral purity, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Um, the Pharisees and the scribes were the professional teachers of the law. Just like today, uh, the Bible can be complex and hard to understand, even for them. At this time, um, most of the people in Israel spoke Aramaic or Greek because of Hellenization and um, 
who's the, who's the Alexander the Great, the conquest from Greece to Persia. Um, Hebrew's been lost as a language for a lot of these people. So the New Testament's in Koinian Greek. And so um, people would have struggled with the languages just like they do now. They would need someone to teach them what the scriptures said and, and what they meant. And rabbis were wildly respected. Now, again, we can kind of look at Pharisees and hate on them. And I think we have kind of a really negative view. But the Pharisees back in the day, they were viewed as the most spiritual people, the people you wanted to be like. Um, they were intelligent. They were well-respected. Um, quite a few scholars think that Jesus was a Pharisee for context. Or that his view of uh, the scriptures and theology would have most aligned with theirs, which is why he was so upset. Um, um, some people, uh, sorry. Um, and so, again, we don't really resonate with Pharisees as that way. We constantly look down on them for a lot of reasons. Um, but Jesus is basically saying, like, unless your righteousness surpasses that of Tim Keller or Meryl Venant or Tom Logue or Mother Teresa, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Did I just put Tom Logue? And Mother Teresa on the same page. I don't know, but they're people I look up to personally. So he's like, you want me to obey the law more meticulously than they do? And hey, that's not what he's saying. He's saying something deeper. He says, um, to make sense what Jesus is doing here, you have to understand the, the way that the Pharisees viewed righteousness and the way that Jesus teaches about it. And actually, over the next two or so months, Grant and I are going to teach over and over, and Maria and different people, Eric Davis, are going to be teaching these portions of Scripture because there's going to be these moments where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say. We almost named this whole series, you have heard it said, um, but I say, right? And so he's going to say, hey, um, this is what the Pharisees have been saying. This is what the teachers of the law have been saying. Like, you read the Old Testament, it's been applied this way. He's going to cover a bunch of different areas. Um, he's going to do this with anger. He's going to do this with sexual purity. He's going to do this with divorce. He's going to do this with honesty. He's going to do this with enemy love. Each example is the kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about. Um, so he's going to say, listen, the Pharisees would say um, the command, right? There, there's this command not to murder. And he'd go, they go, I didn't kill anybody. I'm a good person, right? And what Jesus is going to say is the seeds for the sin of murder are in your heart ready to get watered. The bitterness and the hate and the contempt and the anger, that needs to be snuffed out too. Does that make sense? They go, um, we haven't committed adultery. He's like, do you lust at women and wish you could commit adultery if there wasn't consequences? Cool. Those are the seeds of adultery, just getting right, the right moment at the right time. Um, I'm calling you to something deeper than the Pharisees. I'm calling you to a, an inside-out righteousness where you have a new heart, where you can obey from, from a different place, not just when you feel like it, but you actually do have a heart that increasingly wants the right things, that can do radical, beautiful things that Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning, as we go to communion, there's two things I want to hit. One is, whether we realize it or not, I still don't think we realize, and this hits me sometimes when I'm in, I'm in context that still don't have Bibles. They're still being translated. I don't think we realize the graciousness of God to reveal himself, even through his written word over these last few thousand years. These words spoken to communities that have uplifted men and women in hard spaces and sinful spaces and persecuted spaces. It's lifted up refugees and immigrants, the poor, the rich, that God's revealed himself through his word over these years and, and created kind of a people of the book. 
And the purpose isn't the book itself. Again, it's, it reveals God. It reveals Jesus. And so Jesus' coming is an extension of God's revelation. If you want to know what Jesus is like? If you want to understand Jesus more, get into the Old Testament. But if you want to know what this was all about, come see Jesus, the Lamb of God. There's the Passover Lamb. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the true sacrifice we needed. Here's the true prophet we needed. Here's the true priest we needed. Here's the true king we needed. Here's the older brother we needed. He's better than Joseph, who forgives his brothers. Like everything in the Old Testament is filled out by Jesus, and not just his life, but his death too. I want to take a second and just reflect on two things. Your sin, which is kind of old school for communion, but it's like what it says. Reflect on, just like the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament. We can laugh at them or whatever. We look at the apostles, Peter, like Peter's so ridiculous, right? Um, we're, we're ridiculous too, if we're honest with ourselves. And Jesus loves ridiculous people. Self-righteous, stiff-necked, hard-headed, stubborn people. He keeps loving us. He keeps pursuing us. And so he's revealed himself through his written word, but he also revealed himself, the ultimate revelation is through his son, Hebrews says. So I want to take a moment to reflect on your sin, on your failure to be the kind of person the scriptures call us to be. And then when you're ready, I want you to celebrate remembering that you have a savior. He dies for sinners. He covers sin. He cleanses those who aren't pure. His sacrifice takes away the sin of those who are guilty. It takes away the shame, and, and on and on it goes. So I want to pray. I pray that you would gently, graciously, lovingly remind us, reveal to us where we need you. We're like sheep without a shepherd. We've gone astray, where we've gotten lost. Maybe even in this past week, we got lost in lies, temptations. We might say we let our emotions control us, but deep down we know we, we wanted to feel the way we felt. Maybe we said something we, we regret saying, but deep down we, we wanted to say it in the moment. And so, Lord, where we failed to have an external or an internal righteousness, would you show us our need for you gently? Show us enough of our sin so that in a second when we take communion and look at Jesus, we'll appreciate him so much.